Good morning, everybody. There's a good, another good-looking crew here today. Um, just a quick note on the prayer vigil, if you haven't heard. It's every Thursday for the next six or so weeks, from midnight to midnight. We're trying to fill up 20-minute slots. You can pray wherever you're at, so you don't have to come in here to the church to pray. Prayer works even if you're driving. Just don't close your eyes please, um, but you can still do it. And I would just like, there's two things we're we're praying for. We're praying for God to open up the heavens in two ways. One, by sending moisture in the form of rain or snow or whatever for our county and our region, for our state, really. And then for God to open up the heavens and send his spirit down and, and bring revival into our church and into our hearts. And so if you noticed, what day this week did it snow? Thursday, while we were praying. Does God not answer prayer? It's awesome. Yeah, so we need more snow, though, so keep praying. And I know some of you don't like snow, but we need it. So um, that was a quick word on that. We also have people praying with us on there from Idaho and Florida. Jake Salmon's on there. The, the Grams are praying with us from South Africa. So if you know anybody that wants to join, join us, please, please have them do so. Well, this morning we are going to be in Psalm 96. It'll take me a couple minutes to get there, though. And I was remembering this week uh, when I was in the eighth grade, and I landed a role in a school play under the illustrious direction of Vicki Bobbitt, who was the speech and drama teacher, and Carrie Delisle was also in that play, Carrie Faye now. Um, and I thought, you know, I thought I was a pretty, pretty good actor, you know. So when I, when I became a freshman in high school, I tried out for the school play. And it was a, a performance of Pride and Prejudice. And uh, so you go in and you, you can kind of uh, apply for or audition for any part that you wanted. So I went and read for some of the main characters, probably Mr. Darcy, although I didn't have any idea who Mr. Darcy was when I was 13, 14 years old. And so I auditioned, and then, you know, the, the, the teacher, the director kind of does their thing and puts a list out, you know, and then you go and check the list and who, who you got to be. And when I went and checked the list, it was, there was my name, Michael Fay, and his role was man at party number two. <laughs> it was, I didn't even get number one, <laughs> you know, it's like man at party number two. So my whole role in this performance of Pride and Prejudice, which I didn't even know what the play was about. My whole role was to come on stage with like a drink, you know, like a glass of water, supposed to be a drink, talk, like fake talk to another couple people. I couldn't even make noise. I had to fake talk to them and then walk across the other side of the stage and out. And I was on the stage for maybe 45 seconds total for, you know, however many performances we did. And, and it just kind of got me thinking, have you ever watched movies and, you know, you, you, you focus on the main characters and you focus on the car chase and you focus on this, all these amazing stories that's happened, but then there's all the extras, right? There's all those extras in the back that, that you don't really even notice. You don't even really think much about them. But I've thought before watching a movie, like, I wonder what that guy's like. I wonder what his life is like. He's not just man at party number two. You know, he's got a name and he's got... You know, he's got a story. They could probably make a movie out of that guy's life, right? There was a movie that came out recently. I don't know if you watched it or not, called Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds. 
And he is a character in a video game. So he's a NPC or non-player character, which is basically a background character. It's supposed to have like two lines in the, in the video game, and he's a bank teller. Well, in this movie, he gets a personality, and somehow he comes alive and becomes an actual player in the game, even though he's not being played. And it's just this interesting idea that a background character, somebody that's not even supposed to be part of the story, all of a sudden has a role in the story, and he takes on the main role in the story. This last week, I was, I was talking to Matt Fisher, having coffee with Matt, and Matt said something. I haven't asked if I, if I could share this, but it's a quotation. He said something, though, that stuck out with me, and I have to share it. I'm not going to quote him perfectly, but it went, it went something like this. Matt said something like, every day, I interact with maybe 300 people, and Matt's a Matt's a middle school teacher, so he probably sees that many people and interacts with them in a day. And he said this, I interact with maybe 300 people, and I'm a supporting character in every one of those stories. I'm only the main character in one story. So how would my story change? This is Matt asking this question. How would my story change if I were to be the best possible supporting character I could be for those other 300 stories? Matt's deep. If you ever have coffee, go have coffee with him. He's got deep things to say. If I were the best possible supporting character I could be in those other 300 stories, how would my story change instead of worrying so much about mine? And we're taking a deep dive over these few first months of 2023 into our mission statement, which is to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. And last month, we looked at what it means to be a people. This month, we're looking at the life-giving fullness of the gospel. And a few weeks ago, here's how I defined the gospel. I said that the, the gospel is God's good news. It's the story of the whole Bible that tells of God keeping his promises. And the story reaches its climax in God's eternal son, Jesus Christ, who became human And through his death and resurrection, conquered sin, death, and the devil. This gospel demands a response of obedient, submissive faith in Jesus as king. And by faith, people from every people group, individuals from every people group, are made Christ's and welcomed into God's family, and God gets all the glory. And so as we think about what the gospel is, fundamentally the gospel is a story It's a story about God. And so in a way, the gospel reminds us, though, that we are supporting characters in a story that is mainly not about us. The gospel isn't mainly a story about me. Our stories, my story, your story, they're important. And I would say they're even crucial stories, but they're not the main story. We're not the main characters in the grand story of the world. Ultimately, our stories find, though, they find their true meaning, they find their value, they find their purpose in how well we do as supporting characters in God's story. So the gospel actually redefines each of our stories. That that is, it redefines our lives by centering us on something that is far bigger than ourselves. The gospel expands our stories. It expands our life, and it does that by redefining the center of our lives. 
the center of our stories. And, and when we are not the center of our story, our life actually has more meaning and more purpose than if we are the main event. St. Augustine uh, was the bishop of a place in North Africa called Hippo. And he lived in the late 4th, early 5th century A.D. And he spoke, he wrote in Latin, but he spoke of what he called incurvatus in se. Or in English, that would be the inward curvature of the soul. So imagine your soul and imagine it totally curved in on itself. Like if you were just to bundle yourself into the ball. And he's saying in our natural state, that's what our souls are like. They're curved in on themselves. And when we're curved in on ourselves... All that we can see is ourselves. In essence, Augustine was saying that essentially we are navel gazers. I mean, think about it. Do this. What are you looking at? You're looking at your belly button. You're just a navel gazer. You're totally self-consumed. All that you can see, your whole field of vision is yourself. But through the gospel, we get this glorious. We are freed from our navel gazing. Our inwardly curved souls can finally open up and expand to see something outside of themselves. And the only way to be free from this soul-killing navel-gazing is through God's gracious self-revelation. In other words, God must capture our attention with something bigger than ourselves, namely himself. And this is what the gospel does. It unselfs us. It unselfs us by drawing our eyes from our navels and recentering them on God. It allows us to say no to ourself and yes to God. And, and we find this kind of radical God-centeredness all the way throughout the scripture. Because the Bible is a story that centers on God. It centers on God's character, who he is. And it centers on God's works or what he has done. And because the gospel is God-centered, it reveals who God is. It's the core of his self-revelation. In the gospel, God does the gracious work of sharing himself with us. And so we're going to now look at Psalm 96. For one of the instances, they're all through scripture, but I picked Psalm 96 this morning as one instance of how God draws our focus, how the gospel, the Bible, draws our focus to God. And the first thing it does is the gospel displays God's character or who he is. So in Psalm 96, look at verse 4, where it says, For great is the Lord. The Lord is great, and he's greatly to be praised. He's worthy of our praise. He is to be feared above all gods. So that's who God is. He's above all gods. He's worthy of praise. He's he's great and deserving to be feared. Verse 6, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The Lord exemplifies splendor and majesty and strength and beauty. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The Lord is glorious and he is strong. Verse 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. He deserves our glory. He deserves our praise and honor. And then verse 8 and 9, I love this. We're we're supposed to fear the Lord. He's great and glorious. And then it says, bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. 
tremble before him all the earth. God is a God who welcomes all to come into his presence and to worship him and to tremble before him. That's who he is. He's worthy of, of being coming before but trembling before him. He's worthy of our awe and our worship and our love and our praise. The gospel also here in Psalm 96 displays God's work. Verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. The Lord is a God who saves. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. He does marvelous works. God does marvelous works among all peoples, not just amongst the Jews to who this was written or the Americans, us, but to all people. He displays his marvelous works. Verse 5, For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The Lord is not a worthless idol. He is not a dumb piece of brass or metal or wood or something. He is unique amongst all the so-called gods, and thus he is to be feared. He's the one who made the heavens. And when people make other gods to put before him, they think those gods might live in the heavens, but God is the one who made the heavens. So even if there are other gods, he's over them. He's the only true God. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The Lord is king. He reigns. He rules. He is sovereign. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved Sorry, is this the right verse? Yeah, the the world is established, it shall never be moved. Verse 10, he will judge the peoples with equity. He is the creator, he's established the world, and he is also the just judge. Verse 13, before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The Lord is the righteous and faithful judge of all the earth. And he is coming to render just good, faithful, right judgment and to put everything how it is supposed to be. That's our God. That's the God we worship. That's the God that the gospel tells us about. And the gospel calls us to center ourselves on this God. Theologian Christopher Wright summarizes the the whole scripture's testimony about Yahweh, the God of Israel, with these three words. He's incomparable, he's sovereign, and he's unique. It's the God that we worship. And if God were to withhold any of that from if if he were to withhold his character and his works from us, to not reveal them to us, then we could not know him. And if we couldn't know him, where would we be stuck? We would be stuck curved in on ourselves. And so the gospel graciously recenters our lives. And when your eyes are redirected from your navel, to the maker of the universe, your creator and your savior, wonderful things happen. Recentering our eyes on God instead of yourself should produce praise. Look at verses 7 through 9. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Another word for praise is glory. 
So ascribe to Yahweh glory. Give him praise. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Give him praise. And being commanded to give God glory doesn't, or praise, give him glory, doesn't mean that we add anything to God. To give God glory doesn't mean, oh, God's missing some glory and I'm going to give it to him. God has all the glory he needs. He has all the glory. All that we're doing when we're praising is talking about his glory. We're acknowledging it for what it is. We're speaking back to him who he is, recognizing the glory he already possesses in his character and his works and praising it. So so notice the progression here. God reveals himself. He reveals his character and his work to his creatures, us. And then his creatures, who are freed from their soul-deadening, self-enamored navel-gazing, respond with praise. And in both instances, something is being communicated outward. First, God is communicating himself outward to us, and then we are communicating back to him. His praise, telling him how amazing he is. God-centered lives radiate praise. Now, consider some comments from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the Psalms. Here's what he says, and I have it on the screen so you can follow along. He says this, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. And yes, Andrew, I spelled honor in the British way, just like C.S. Lewis would have done. So, all right, let me start over that sense. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, which is what this psalm does, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy Because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. In other words, what what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that God-centered people cannot help but praise him. Out of joy, out of delight, can't help but praise him. God-centered lives radiate, they exude praise. So we've covered two steps of our journey in understanding how the gospel expands our lives. The first, we find God sharing himself with us by revealing to us his character and his works, radiating those out to us. And then we, in turn, share our response to his character and works in the form of praise. We radiate that praise back to God. 
But praise tends to overflow, doesn't it? It tends to overflow, even as he's saying here, as C.S. Lewis is saying. True praise is difficult. It's, it's impossible to keep to ourselves. I mean, just think about something you've experienced lately that you couldn't wait to share with someone else. I mean, isn't that what social media is about? That's what we post on there. I want to share something with people. Maybe you, you started a new exercise routine or, you, or your, your favorite sports team won a game or, or you bought a new car or a new computer or found a new coffee shop or a restaurant that you've discovered. Or maybe Dairy Queen came out with a new Blizzard flavor. Or you have a new grandbaby or a new hobby or a new pet or a, or a new job. When you delight in something, you want to praise it. And it's, it's nearly impossible not to share your excitement, not to have that exude and radiate out to others. And so we discover that true praise necessitates witness. If we have truly met and experienced and delighted in all that God is for us in Christ then what else can we do than tell others about it? And even as the psalmist to tell, the psalmist tells others to tell others. So look at Psalm 96, verses 1 through 3. He starts by telling everyone else to praise God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Do you you see how the gospel constantly expands? It constantly emanates outward. It can't be contained. It's impossible for it to keep to itself. It is good news, and good news has to be communicated. It has to be broadcast. It has to be spread. It's meant to be proclaimed. And this proclamation and expansion of the knowledge of God was, of course, as we look at the scriptural story, this was the mission of Israel. God chose them from all the nations of the world and made them his own special people. They were created to receive God's self-revelation, to experience his character and his works and to see his glory. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, worship leaders for the whole world. And over and over again, they were able and they were supposed to tell and retell the story of who God is and what he has done. They were to be, as the scripture tells us, a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 42 I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. But if you're familiar at all with the biblical story, you know that Israel sadly failed at this. They didn't do their job in displaying and proclaiming the character and works of God. So when Jesus came, the one who represented the true and better Israel He embodied the light that Israel was supposed to be. We we read this in the very first verses of John's gospel. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And seven chapters later in John 8, Jesus 
gets up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We noticed earlier that another way to say praise is to say give glory. So to praise God is to give him glory. But on on top of that, throughout the scripture, glory often has a physical manifestation. And that manifestation in scripture is light. So when God is described physically or visibly, he's described as light, or his glory is described as, as bright light. Consider these words then from John's gospel. John says, Jesus was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness hasn't overcome it. A few verses later, he says, And the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We've seen the light of the world in him. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, was the physical manifestation of God's glory in the world. Some of his disciples got to see the the flesh veil lifted for a minute and see his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw, when you looked at Jesus, you saw his glory. To see Jesus was to see the light of the world. In the same way, we can consider that God's original intention for Israel, and even for humanity, if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, this was God's intention for humanity, was to be a physical representation of God's glory to all the world, to all the nations of the world. Fortunately, unfortunately, Israel wasn't, but Jesus was. And now because of the gospel, and because of the, God's gift of the indwelling and empowering Holy Spirit, that's exactly what we are. The physical embodiment and representation of God's glory, his light in the world. Listen to Jesus' empowering words. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. This is Jesus who stood up and said, I am the light of the world. Now he's looking at his disciples and saying, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So consider the imagery here. Jesus first gives his light or his glory to us. And then we spread that light or glory to others. And they in turn, according to this verse, they in turn praise. What's another way to say praise? Give glory. They take and give that glory back to the Father. This is a perfect illustration of the expansive God-centered life that the gospel gives us. The gospel expands our lives by transforming us into the light of the world. And the most foolish thing we could do would be to hide that light. And brothers and sisters, the light is not meant to be kept in a closet. It's not meant to be put under a bed. It's meant to be seen. It's meant to be shared It's one thing to enjoy and revel in the benefits of the gospel. But it's another thing altogether 
to join in God's own mission and share these benefits with their intended audience, which according to the scriptures is all people and all nations. And so we've been entrusted with the gospel. We were never meant to keep the gospel to ourselves. It's not an option for us to keep the good news to ourselves, to keep God's glory to ourselves. When Israel did this, it didn't go well for them. When we do it, we become stagnant. We become moldy. We become navel gazers again. So the purpose for which we exist as the church of Jesus Christ is not so that we can have better lives, a nicer church building, or be the coolest or friendliest or oldest church in town. We have one of those. I'm not sure if we have all three. The goal of the gospel is not to make us healthier or wealthier. The reason for our existence as the people of God is simple. Two words, worship and witness. We are the light of the world. And our job is to spread God's fame and glory to all people and tribes and tongues and nations. So, So the gospel expands our lives by first looking away from ourselves and up to God and finally outward towards others. So the gospel, therefore, is essentially missional. It's meant to go. And mission begins and ends with God. Again, theologian Christopher Wright has said, when you know who God is, when you know who Jesus is, witnessing mission is the unavoidable outcome. And may that be so for us. As you come to the Lord's table today, we take communion almost every week here at First Baptist. And if you're a follower of Jesus, whether or not you're a member of the church, you are welcome to come and partake. And as you do so, as we remember the the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, symbolized by a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice, We remember that he died for us, that he gave himself out for us. He poured himself out for us so that we might be freed from ourselves and become God-centered. And so this morning, I I would encourage you to come and and begin with worship. Begin with praise. Begin by giving glory to Jesus for what he has done. And as you go from this table, this, this table should be a missional table. It should send us out into this world carrying the hope of the gospel the light of Jesus Christ with us. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we come again to this table remembering who you are and what you've done, remembering your greatness, your glory, your beauty, your splendor. We come to you even with knees knocking and yet knowing that in Christ you have accepted us as children. You've called us into your presence. You've made a way through Jesus for us to be yours. So, Lord God, Would you receive the praise today? We pray that you would be glorified and honored in our hearts, in our lives, in our mouths. As we speak, as we act, as we think, may we go from this place praising you, worshipful, full of the glory and the light that you give us in the gospel. Draw our attention to Jesus this morning, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.